Now, if a man's been lucky enough to spend half a century on this earth, and he's, uh... <laughs> he's likely been blessed and cursed, hmm? you can't, uh, spend 50 years of life without a bit of both. Time brings joy and pain loss, and renewal. And tonight, I want to recognize the newest addition to our family, Judge Michael Desiato. Welcome to Tales from Yaya's, your dedicated after-show podcast for Showtime series, Your Honor. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're discussing part 14. Tonight's episode was written by Alia Brown, and like last week's episode, was directed by Darren Grant. Just a little note that this is Alia's first writing credit on the show. Well, just a community note, please join us over on Facebook in the Showtime Your Honor TV series fan group to discuss all things Your Honor with other fans. And also a reminder that we assume you have watched this episode and this is not a step-by-step recap of it. Plus, you're going to get spoiled. So if you haven't watched the episode and you don't want to be spoiled, pause, go watch, come back, and then you'll listen to us talk for about an hour, hour and a half. Today's going to be about an hour. <laughs> Today is going to be an hour, which actually lends itself well, because this was definitely a move the plot forward. We got a big introduction of a new character who I think is going to be important to the show going forward. In Delicioso the... new character. Uh, I mean, we have one of the themes we set out from the first episode was that at some point, control of the Baxter family was going to come to a head. This idea that Gina and Jimmy were at such loggerheads a year, a year um, from from Rocco being killed and Adam being killed, that it felt like there was going to be a tug of war for power. And the introduction of Gina's father, Carmen, uh, Carmine Conti, played by the wonderful Mark Margulis in this episode, I think pretty much cements that that is going to be where we go in the next six episodes. Oh, absolutely. Every single bit of us talking about Gina trying to grab those reins and get a lot more control. She's obviously got the backer now here, you know, with her dad. And she's and she expressed in, in this how, you know, tight she was with her dad, you know, all these years that, that that's her rock. Um, so to bring him in is not just bringing in her dad, but like bringing in her closest confidant as well. And of course, for everyone who loves Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul, I mean, to see Salamanca here. Are you kidding me? I was like pointing at the screen like, ah, ah. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's amazing. What an awesome casting choice to bring them together like this. Like it just it brings electricity to the set that is just like, ooh, so new and different. Yeah, you gotta love a mini Breaking Bad reunion wherever you can find them. So, uh, oh, my gosh. Amazing. Yeah. When he was the mini prender cura. <laughs> get it get it get it carmine you let you like all that italian talk huh oh my god well that, that loosely translates to i'll take care of it 
Uh, see, and there's something about that that warms my whole body. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I, I mean, there wasn't much in the way of episode theme other than uh, just a recurring uh, motif of everyone is watching everyone always at all times. You should assume you're being watched or monitored in some way in this show. Uh, we, we, You had Roderick stalking the Evans family and stalking Sheila to try and find his money. You have uh, Olivia bugging Michael without telling him jimmy keeping tabs on michael that he knows that he's staying at senator grandma's house you have jimmy watching michael and fia interacting at the party and his jealousy you can literally see the green oh, yeah. flushing up his neck with jealousy oh yeah the, the way his face changed from like a smile into like this grimace was like oof and of course you have uh Gina watching and seeing Michael enter the party while she's talking to Carlo and and the blood draining out of her face you have you have the green with envy rising in Jimmy's and him being flushed and you have the blood draining out of Gina's uh face when she sees uh Michael enter the party so uh, a true threat it makes me laugh that that uh Carlo puts himself in the observer position when he's trying to hit on the concierge lady and uh I love it that it's like a fake observation because it's like that's so perfection for Carlo that of course he would he would say all these things about the people he observed and for her to be like and that's all completely wrong it made me laugh because it's it is like such a perfect like metaphorical like this guy thinks he is a part of this whole thing but he's like so periphery and pretend it's so funny yeah, definitely get the feeling like the cameras that Jimmy spends his nights watching, you know, it would be not like a far fetch that they're like pretend footage, yes, you know, yes. and you wouldn't notice like, <laughs> it, but here's the thing though, Angela, a little bit charmed by Carlo. She definitely was. She definitely was. I, and it was a charming little scene, even with the, just the confidence with, with which he was rambling off what turned out to be all wrong information. There is something charming in that dumb, dumb confidence that he has. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It totally worked. It was funny. It was it was a good little come online, but it was everyone else is doing the real thing. And he's over here like like play acting at it. The whole thing is that he's in charge of security for this party. He has a whole conversation with his mother, you know, like, don't worry, mama. No one's going to get into this party that I don't know about. Literally five minutes later, what's Michael Desiato <laughs> doing here? I don't know. <laughs> you're not going to your job, Carlo. Good Lord, man. Good Lord, man. Let's not get to the backstage yet, though. Let's, let's save them because they're just so delicious, as you said. Let's start with Michael and his random interactions. No Senator Grandma again this week. I'm missing old Margot Martindale. I know she's got a new show on tv accused i believe she's in and she's one of the most in-demand people but we need some margo and also these episodes were shot like a year ago so it's not like you know accused was a problem then yeah i wish we had her because she she brings that balance of of like the old situation back you know like she's she brings in the part where it's like remember robin remember adam remember like all those things when she's on screen that's what i think about when she's not there nobody's talking robin you know that it's just like a, a whole different conversations happening happening. I'm glad that you mentioned Robin because now we're we're four episodes in in a ten episode season, probably not gonna get a season three. Are we starting to lose hope that we're going to figure out the Robin murder? I know that was something that you and I and a lot of the fans, we hear about it all the time in the Facebook group. I see it all the time in Reddit and other social media channels where your honor is discussed. What happened to Robin? Are we gonna learn about Robin's murder? 
with only six episodes left and now with this introduction of Carmine and all these other tangents we have, does it feel like that's just the ship that has sailed? Ooh, that is a very good question. And I feel like I'm standing exactly in the middle right now because I feel like on one hand, because we're getting so much deeper into Big Mo's business and everything that's going on over there, if it does turn out to be that Robin was tied into the Desire Gang somehow um, with with the affair or with whomever she was photographing, then... I feel like, I don't know, maybe we could actually cross paths with that man, you know, as we're getting sort of deeper and getting to know more of the guys in in Big Mo's gang. But at the same time, you're so right. You know, the more that we're looking over at Gina's family and starting to fill out that universe, that does feel like we're pulling away from Robin's story. I feel like they should they would have dropped some kind of nugget about it if we were going to go there. I think so, too. But it but it also feels like an awfully huge backstory thing to leave completely open. It seems huge, but I'm with you. I'm with you. And obviously they came to season two with the idea that they must have a much bigger story to tell. Yeah, I I think so. I I feel like maybe Robin, as it's going on, I feel like Robin maybe is becomes the thing if we were to talk to the creators, Peter Moffat and the other uh, writers in the room, that it's going to be like, a well, if we had a season three, we'd get into Robin's murder. I feel like that's kind of where we're heading. Well, because it seems like they have a bigger story for season two. Right. You know, and so in that case, it's like they came back to the table like, okay, let's fill out Gina's Baxter side of this whole family. And let's like, you know, sort of just enlarge the whole desire gang slash you know, the mafia side of things in New Orleans. And if that's the way they're going... There's no room for the Robin storyline. Not really, because no. it's kind of a small story compared es- to the rest of Escalating gang war, internal civil war is, is, is a six-episode <laughs> arc at the very it least. Is. So It is. So Let's get into Michael and Charlie and kick off our, our discussion here. I need you to come to a birthday party with me. <laughs> That's what you wanted to ask me? It's for Jimmy Baxter. You're kidding. Are you out of your mind? You shouldn't be talking to Jimmy Baxter. Hell, I shouldn't be talking to Jimmy Baxter. He wants political influence. He's trying to get to me through you and you're letting him? There's another reason. Come on. It's just that he and I have a grandchild. Adam and Fia, they have a baby. She didn't know she was pregnant when uh, fuck me. Charlie's the best. <laughs> you know that's my new favorite isolated line. Fuck me. <laughs> Charlie was my favorite this whole episode because, yeah. like, when he showed up at the party, it was it was the same like breath of fresh air. Like he brought that same energy. I love him. He's 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 the best friend we all want. Uh, best friend. But honestly, I just want to kind of hear him read stuff. I, uh, Isaiah Whitlock who plays him. He's just got such a good little baritone voice going. Uh, even in that scene, just the way he says, they like resonate. Like you feel it. Like you get a little rumble in your chest when he talks, which. 
is always very comforting to listen to. I love everything about Charlie. Even even knowing knowing he's getting played and knowing Michael's getting played, he still walks into that party. That is a best friend that we all want. But we got to talk about the Michael aspect of it all. He's in the kitchen with Olivia early in this episode. He's saying he wanted to, try, to you know protect Charlie. That's why he was doing any of this to begin with. So now he's going to serve him up and bring him to a party. Olivia naively or just trying to work Michael says it's just a birthday party what could happen and also not bringing charlie would be worse for him bringing him is actually you helping to protect him and so michael goes to work and you know uses the baby you know leverages the friendship more everything michael's doing here when this eventually blows up in his face and be sure it will blow up in his face this is just more leveraging and leveraging and making it impossible for him to have this friendship at the end of this yeah i mean yeah, I mean, because every single time he asks Charlie to do something and he isn't fully honest, then yeah, I mean, it's it's complete ammo for later. Like, well, what, like, what'd you do that for? Right. It's just, I mean, he's just straight manipulating. He's doing the same things he did to Lee and the same things yeah. he did to Nancy. He's 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 good at it. He's he's a master of it. But this is your last friend on earth, and yes, you're trying to protect him in your way or or at least based on the facts that you're aware of but also it's it's hard to watch knowing the sincerity the sincerity here is tenuous at best right he's 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 manipulating right yeah Yeah, you're like teeing him up and it and it's it's scary when it's like that because it actually really reminds me of the other judge that he asks to go have a drink because it's his birthday and and how he was like teeing her up to get pulled over and all that like it feels like that having that same type of conversation and and you know there's more to the conversation but he's not telling yeah i mean i I like they go outside and charlie diffuses the situation he jokes about having bought adam the first box of condoms but never teaching him how to use them and making jokes but then they get serious again and you know he tells michael he's like he says jimmy's playing you jimmy is using you and michael doesn't deny it he says yeah i know but still please come he's leveraging this friendship to a point of no return and that's sad to me because this is one of the best relationships on the show and one of his very last you know yeah that's true that's true the fact that he shows up and the first thing he does is like i'm here because i want to see the baby you know and even even interacting with fia and, and seeing the picture he really is coming from such a pure place charlie i'm sad because i know i know in my heart how this is going to end it, it's sad to watch all this play out because he is such a good friend to michael and michael michael is putting him in a position where he will not have this friend when all of the dust settles we gotta go to olivia olivia i like olivia i, I have not made any bones about hiding that or, or quibbles about that i like this character i i know this character i find her very amusing when she's in the kitchen she's like i'm just trying to make small talk michael like i i like everything about it but man she's sloppy and she's reckless and this is not a good look for her okay so i'm wondering does she have a severe gambling problem I mean, I'm smelling addiction here. I mean, if you go back to the episode where she's in the bar and cheering against LSU, but she says, I just need them to cover the spread. And then this one, obviously, she's sitting there watching the track. You know, she's obviously betting on it, definitely splitting her attention to the point of completely losing, you know, what she was trying to get with Michael. Just, oh, my God. So now we're starting to find more of Olivia's flaws. And this is starting to make more sense of why she got demoted and that she does have have like a quite a bit of like you know her own demons that she's battling here nail on the head with the addiction story 
Ireland, the fact that she's streaming uh, the horse track on the large screen and having and while monitoring his bugged mic. And she's so split focused that she spills the beans that she bugged him. I mean, (laughs) let's let's play a couple of the clips here. Uh, Let's play the bugged one first, only because in case people missed it, listen to what she says. And this is how she tips her hands to Michael when he's at the party that she is, in fact, bugging him. Hi, Michael. Look, I'm leaving. Not until you do what you came there to do. Look, I I don't even know what I'm doing. Just keep your eyes open. There's something missing, Michael, so I need you there. I am not wanted here. Look, forget Gina, okay? Jimmy wants you there. That's all that matters. Forget Gina. Jimmy's the only one that matters. That forget Gina line is what tips her hand because she's not paying attention. She's trying to cover her tracks. She's trying to be smooth. She's trying to work over Michael. And yet she's so distracted by the gambling. She completely drops the fact that she must be listening to him. How else would she know that he would be worried about Gina at all? It's sloppy. It's really sloppy and it's reckless. And the fact that she bugged him without telling him, knowing he's going to be in the proximity of all these Baxters and probably get searched at some point is reckless. And and it's a head scratcher, to be honest, because it makes you feel like she's only got Michael. This isn't like the type of situation where she's got like 20 guys in there all bugged. Like she's only got him. Like she's really not protecting her asset here at all. Right. We talked a couple of weeks ago. I think it was an episode two. We talked about how Olivia definitely seems to be treating Michael like an expendable asset, that she's not really concerned about his welfare. The fact that she's putting him into the lion's den so frequently and with an aggression. You know, the, the fact that she got him a job where he's going to be like delivering meat to the Baxter house. You know, she didn't tell him that part. He he walked into that kind of thing. She's regularly putting him in harm's way, but now she's putting him in harm's way in a way that will likely get him killed. If if Frank finds that bug on him in that warehouse in that parking garage scene at the end of the episode, he's dead. Michael doesn't walk out of there, no matter what he has to say, no matter how he can sympathize his way out of there or or turn the tables on Jimmy. He's dead. They never even get to that conversation if he's found with a bug on him. Absolutely. Reckless. Just reckless. So even if she doesn't care about Michael as a living human, she doesn't care about her operation because she would have handled this differently. And that's what you see in the bathroom scene when he discovers, when he pats himself down, he takes off the belt, he looks at all the different places where a bug may be, he finds the collar stay. Do you by the way, do you call it a collar stay or a collar stick? I say stay. That, that, I think that's the phrase I know most too, but I know they also get called collar sticks. I bet that's one of those Kleenex tissue kind of situations. Probably Mm. one of them's the brand name and one of them's the not. Uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, the company that makes pla- if you if you guys are listening and you make the little plastic collar thingies, reach out to us. What's your actual yeah. name? Yeah. Is it the brand name called Collar Stay? And then probably. So he's patting himself down. He hangs up the phone. He knows immediately what's going on. So he, he basically strip searches himself for the thing. He does what Frank does to him later. He finds it. The little silent fuck that he utters is everything because it ties in perfectly to their conversation earlier in the episode when he's getting suited for when he's getting fitted for the suit. Let's take a listen to the horse's conversation. I need you to be my eyes at the party. What is it you want to see? Jimmy's over-leveraged. That's what these people do. They dream about projects that are way too big for them, and then they make mistakes. 
You are grasping at straws. I am building a case. No, no, I know a strong case when I see it, and I know when prosecutors are not standing on solid ground. You play the ponies? What? Horse racing. You ever go to the tracks? No. Well, I do. I love it. I love horses. I love that they're imperfect. I love that it's up to us to get to know them. And that is my specialty. Oh. And you, my friend, are a mother. Oh. You're not the strongest, you're not the fastest, and you're certainly not the prettiest. But when shit gets fucking messy, that's when I'm betting you shine. Now, a mutter, for those that don't know or aren't, you know, into horse terminology, a mutter is a horse that races well in rainy, muddy conditions on a track. And so exactly what she's saying, when the track goes to hell, you don't necessarily want your fastest horse. That fastest horse is going to break its leg. You don't want the strongest horse because they're going to maybe push through and they're going to break their ankle. Right. You want the horse that is just a workhorse that can just get through the mess. It's a great it's a great analogy. I don't think she's wrong. Uh, You know, Michael, definitely maybe he's not great at pressure, at least with coming up with lies we've seen that he's not wonderful at coming up with stories on the fly but he does handle pressure relatively well compared to most anyway the interesting thing about this one in addition to pointing out again the horses and the addiction and the gambling is he knows that she's full of shit she's talking about how jimmy is over leveraged and that's when he's going to make a mistake michael's saying to her you're over leveraged and you're making a mistake you're grasping he already knows he knows going into this party the same way he knows he's setting charlie up for being within jimmy's grasp michael knows he's going into this party because olivia his his handler is fucked and is is desperate. Actually, I love this this mutter analogy to because I think actually it really describes the entire situation. I think of when you think of like a mutter horse, I think of it like the horse that's like in this super sloppy, chaotic, unplanned conditions where there's no finesse. It's all just like the sloppiest, messiest, nastiest kind of finish. And and people are getting hurt. There's like flailing limbs. Things are happening all over the place. I think not only is Michael, she's hoping he's a mutter. He is because he's a scrappy guy who's going to try to, you know, rise to the top at the end. But she thinks she's a mutter at the end of the day. I don't think she actually is. I don't think that she's the one that actually wins the race. She fancies herself somebody who can figure it all out. This really exposed quite a bit about her. And we said this total lack of finesse. Yeah, she's really messy at this point. As good as she does seem to be at understanding people, she knows that Jimmy's going to drop him off, right? She's waiting literally in the garden for when Jimmy drops Michael off in that unsettling scene with the whistling in the beginning and drops him off the house. She's right there. So she does understand people. She does understand these players. She is a study of human condition, but you're right. The way say the same way she says there's something missing from what's happening at the party and she needs to keep she needs Michael to keep his ears out so he can figure it out. There's something missing from her. Yeah, that we need to keep our eyes peeled and right. our ears open to figure out what I there's something about there's her a too deficiency there. Well, you know how the people who need to tell you that they're popular, yeah. you need to cock your head at right. a person who tells you they're good at reading other people and continues to tell you they're good at reading other people. Actually, you should cock your head at if you're good at something like that, you keep that to yourself because that's one of those advantages for you that you don't you do not tip your hand about you show it in other ways like 
barring him from the courthouse. That was a huge, real, tangible, like, look, she does know how to read people. I don't like it that they keep making her say it dialogue wise. I think that's a real I'm I'm popular. I'm popular. I'm popular kind of thing. That's like, quit saying it. The more you say it, the less I believe you. Yeah, but but it fits with her character, though, right? Because it's the same character who keeps saying also, why are you fighting me on this? Why just do what I say? She's saying it. He's she's saying it to yeah, Nancy. She was good at reading people. She would already know why he's fighting her on this. You know what I mean? Like, quit quit saying it. But the idea of her having this addiction, right, that, that we're seeing here, revealing herself to have these sloppy deficiencies, and I like the sloppy word. My notes say she's acting sloppy. I say it a couple of places in my notes, I think, is a great continuation of the mutter metaphor also, because the messiness on top of being in the middle of the Baxters, the messiness is also going to be cleaning up Olivia's sloppy work, which was what he has to do in the bathroom. He needs to go find the bug. She doesn't help him with that. He He's proving his mutterness because he's cleaning up her mess, her sloppiness in the bathroom so he can stay alive because he assuredly would have been dead at the end of this episode. It's it's like this, this split focus. If she was fully paying attention on that conversation and not watching horse racing, Maybe she doesn't tip her hand. Maybe if she's not split focused, she lets him in on the fact that you're going to have a bug on you, by the way. Maybe not. Maybe not, because she definitely seems to keep him in the dark, right? It's the, it's even in that conversation it went on the phone when she's in the car. He's like, I don't even know what I'm doing here or what I'm supposed to be doing. And she's like, just keep doing what you're doing. It, which again, she has said to him a bunch of times. So she probably doesn't tell him about the bug, but if she was more clear thinking and not distracted by whatever side issues she has maybe she doesn't put the bug on him or it doesn't put the bug on him in such an obvious place maybe she mm-hmm. just puts it in his phone or in his shoe or something the collar stay is if you're if you're inclined to search someone that's a place where you're going to find it and even frank notes that he's missing one but doesn't make a big deal of it it's a big re- revelation that we have to keep an eye on her because her behavior may jeopardize Michael and Charlie and Fia and the baby's safety as much as anything else going on here. Yeah, I think it already is. I mean, I think that this episode with the bug shows that she actually is 100 percent putting him in danger because of her messiness. I want to let's listen to this clip again real quick because there's she says something in here that I wanted to talk about. Hi, Michael. Look, I'm leaving. Not until you do what you came there to do. Look, I, I don't even know what I'm doing. Just keep your eyes open. There's something missing, Michael, so I need you there. I am not wanted here. There's something missing, so I need you there. I don't know what she's talking about. What do you think she's picking up? To me, that sounds like she feels like there's something wrong with the setup, right? That, that, that this isn't happening the way it's supposed to be. There's some missing piece to the story that it's not obvious i don't know what that could be i'm curious if you picked up on what she's referring to there what what is the thing that may be missing i didn't uh, be able to actually like nail down what i think she's exactly talking about but i did note it and say like you know put it on the board as like what is it she's looking for i'm wondering if she's looking for gina's dad because she's coming from this much larger case like she's she's not looking at it just from the new orleans standpoint she's looking at it from you know this this much larger you know group of people getting rid of you know 10 or 100 or however many criminals she thinks she's going to put away that 
that to me means you have to you have to be looking for the person who's like bigger picture. And he's the only one I can think of. Like I, I thought maybe he was she was waiting for him to somehow end up interacting with him as like the missing piece. That makes sense. I mean, the Carmine definitely makes sense. And he's also introduced after this conversation happened. So maybe she was waiting for that that shoe to drop or maybe wondering why given all of the development and in the news uh notes that jimmy is grabbing that maybe why carmine hadn't shown up before now so that makes sense the carmine aspect does make the most sense for the thing that's missing but yeah let's put it on the board though because i'm not sure if we have a good answer for what she's picking up because again sloppy reckless distracted but good at her job in some aspects her instinct that there is fire here not just smoke is right so we can't just that's the problem we can't dismiss her completely we we have to we have to give some credence to olivia and what's what her plan is albeit she's going about it poorly and she's being reckless and sloppy (laughs) about it but there is a thing here that she's onto that we have to pay attention to but I'm not that impressed with that because that, I mean, they are a known, you know, gangster type family, right? They have a reputation. So to have any interaction with them and be like, I think something could be going on here. It's like, I don't know, like watching Clue or something and be like, I think someone might be murdered. Like, I mean, ooh, wow, you're really sticking your neck out on that hunch that something could be going on here. Like, yeah, they're a gangster family with like known ties. Like, she's not really like, oh, so smart for thinking something could be going on. Well, it does beg the question and, and, and you're, you're hitting right at the right question that maybe Nancy is bringing up in the conversation last week is, Olivia's talking not just the Baxter family, too small, that the Baxters can help take down the entire eastern seaboard of mafia activity. Uh, You know, not one family, all the families. I don't know. This Olivia that we see in this episode doesn't have the ability to handle such a large, complex operation. She's too sloppy. She can't handle properly bugging a target and putting him in the harm's way. Just one. She's only watching one one guy, and she can't seem to keep tabs on him very well or really make sure that he's safe. You know, like, come on. Those are really the only two things she has to do. Right. So, you know, it's it's the step one. Use Michael Desiato. Step two, question mark. Step three, take down the entire mafia. It, it, there's there's some lack of mm-hmm. there's a lack of faith I'm, I'm having a lack of faith or confidence in her ability to take down such a large operation because you because you don't get the feeling that that she has an actual strategy i mean i feel like I, we're starting to poke holes in this whole like just trust me just go out there be my eyes it's like i feel like okay we were giving your vagueness some sort of like legitimacy because we were like well maybe she can't tell him what she's looking for i don't think she knows what she's looking for i she's think just she's fishing. just poking around yeah, yeah she's just fishing. and hoping that he's gonna overhear a conversation or something like I, I to me i think this episode like really poked a lot of holes in olivia as a character and as like her actual ability to do anything 
But then again, then she programs her name as Bestie in his phone, which amuses me to no end. <laughs> so complex, complex relationship there with well, uh, with the Olivia. So. Okay, <laughs> uh, she makes me laugh. What do you want me to say? <laughs> I'm I'm and it's it. a really nice suit. I, the conversation with the mad genius hair, oh, and the Saddam Hussein. Are you kidding me? Do you know that I like was like squealing for joy at a makeover montage as soon as they were like starting to measure him? I was like makeover, makeover. And then Fia cutting his hair and all that stuff. I mean, I was like, we're getting full on makeover. I'm loving every second of this. Like, I love a good makeover. Let's get to Fia and Michael. Great segue, as always. Um, so are you, are you coming to my dad's birthday party? I am. I, I just, I don't want my family butting into every single part of my life. I honestly think that you should stay away from them. Bad things happen when they're around. Bad things happen when I'm around, too. I just want one person in my life that I can trust. The bad things happen when I'm around too reminded me again of Breaking Bad. And again, at this point, we hadn't met uh, Carmine. We didn't have the the Salamanca connection, but the I'm the I'm the I'm the one who knocks in the dark kind of you know bad things happen around me too. I mean, he says yeah. it. He says it like a warning to her, but it also there's a there's a hint of a threat in there. There, there is. Yeah, that when yes. you, you don't say a line like that without there being a threat, or at least like a, I'm as dangerous as your family, who you think are the most dangerous. I'm as dangerous as them. That's what I think he's saying in a kindly way, but in a way nonetheless. Maybe not. Th- maybe warning in terms of warning, like for sure. Don't don't get too close. Like don't don't look at me and and basically you know I'm not your savior. <laughs> well, you don't hit your wagon to me. Like I I'm I am not on a healthy, happy, good path. You know, bad shit seems to follow me too. You know that that kind of sentiment is is fair because I mean God, what what a horrible situation Fia must feel like she's in if Michael looks like the best port in the storm. You know, like he's he's not. A in good shape and not in a good place to in any way you know support her yeah but think about it though she as far as she knows that's purely out of father grief for losing a son and what she understands only as a reckless act of violence fia is so interesting in the show because she has so little of the important information and yet is going along and is such a centrally placed character every major character in this show knows the thing that Fia doesn't and they all dance around her and they all go about their day and they all interact with her and never say anything to her. Imagine how different the show would be, how different Fia would be if she knew the truth. Just to be completely clear for listeners, so so you are you are going with the idea that 100% she does not know that Adam killed Rocco. 100%. And I th- I believe that as well. I wonder if our listeners, if everybody agrees with that, or if they feel like this is one of those, everybody becomes a saint when they die. So even if Adam killed Rocco, 
his shroud of sainthood falls over you when you die and all of a sudden you could have done no wrong when you were alive even if that was true and maybe i mean she she's carrying his baby it happens to pretty much everybody right well she's carrying his baby and that amplifies and heightens that even more but i don't think that explains her her continuing need to reach out to michael Remember, eight, eight, nine months of letters, going to the prison, seeking him out as soon as he's released. All of the things that Fia has done. I don't know if she's that dogged to find him and have him in her life if she knows the truth about Adam. It's one thing to sainthood Adam, right? It's another to seek out the guy who, if you want to, you can easily blame for your beloved's death his father, right? It would be easy for Fia to see Michael as the enemy in this story, as much as her her family, as as anything, if not more, because in the same way you know, Jimmy says to Michael last week, it was your fear that got him killed. That's a really easy story to believe. Yes. So, yes. Adam in a sainthood, sure, fine. Maybe she still, ha- maybe she still loves Adam as much, even knowing uh, he killed her brother. I don't think she goes, I don't think she's idolizing and seeking out Michael in the same way if she knows. I'm pretty confident that she doesn't. But I lean on your comment because I agree with you that she's so centrally located in the story. It's really hard to believe between everybody who knows that somehow she doesn't know. But but I but I agree with you. You know, okay, she she does seem to be well guarded in this. You know, it's a thread that pulls out that does lead back to bad dealings on her family's behalf in the wake of Rocco's death at Adam's hand. Mm. If she starts pulling on that thread. And learns that it was Adam that killed Rocco. Then she starts learning everything else that happened. The fact that the judge tried to cover it up and that by covering it up, the judge became a pawn in Carlo's trial. Carlo, who remember it was, it was Fia last year in season one or two years ago in season one, who said the wrong brother died. She was waiting for Carlo to be dead, willing him and wishing that Rocco was still alive. Carlo, who viciously and horrendously murdered Kofi Jones, which Fia would not be okay with based on everything we know about her. Like there's a thread there that once you start to pull out, that there's a vested interest why they wouldn't tell her as easily as it would be to say knee-jerk wise stay away from Desiado you don't know what he did you don't know what Adam did that leads to a whole bunch of uncomfortable conversations right I get you and and obviously there's got to be a lot of confusion though within that same question of why did the judge go to jail like what does Fia think she he was in jail for you know what does she think Carlo was innocent and it was self-defense in the trial like it's curious as to like what what would she think in this strange isolated but central position of the story what must she think all these people were were going to jail for yeah, that's a, an excellent question. I'm mean, curious, at least. I, I mean, one question also that just keeps coming up in our Facebook group. What did Michael go to prison for? I, I, I feel like we've seen that question three <laughs> times in every episode. It's like, what? We because have. they've not been clear with it. Like, we know that he rigged a trial, but they, they've still not been clear about they hit on this episode of why he got does it say right why like why is michael desiato not working as a judge in new orleans anymore what what is the story and there would need to be something said in some regard you know yeah you would he wasn't at a black site he was in a large prison yeah where lots of people knew him and stuff and all of a sudden he's in prison and like well what's the story so it's curious because we whether it's a good story or a bad story we don't know the story 
story that people are believing. I'm curious what that story was out there. You know, what were people saying? Just mentioning in the Facebook group real quick, I, I feel like I know these episodes were shot long before these conversations were happening in a basic group, but I took the what <laughs> what is happening here with the the uh, the suit man, the tailor, you know, what is happening here when he's looking at his head and he's talking about he looks like Saddam Hussein. <laughs> the the Facebook group has been brutal on uh, Michael's unruly <laughs> beard and hair. So I feel like this was like a love letter to like a head nod to the Facebook group, which yeah, makes like, me laugh like, every time. We all agree he can't continue to look like an insane Listen, person. I work right from now. home. I work from home and so it's not uncommon for me to look like Michael Desiato oh once once every two weeks before I, <laughs> I before I look at myself in a mirror and go, Good God and then <laughs> and then I have to clean myself up. So I, I sympathize and empathize. I feel a little bit attacked honestly. Soap and water every every so often. Soap and water and a and a razor for God's sakes. Just to right. trim trim that beard. She, they have the very sweet little makeover montage. She cuts his hair I love these two. I like their relationship. It's it's everything. Fia has in Michael everything, at least in her head, that she doesn't have with her father, which is interesting given Gina and Carlo's conversation about how Carlo doesn't need his father either because he has that special relationship. Weird as it may be with that with, with <laughs> Gina. So no one needs Jimmy. I mean, we're, we're as the make outy as it might be, as uncomfortable as it may be. <laughs> Calm down. Oh my god! They were like one second from making out. I was like, Carlo. Oh man, go back to when. Go back to when he's using the heavy bag in the in the in the backyard in the first episode. She comes and wraps both of her arms around onto his chest. Be like whispering in his ear. Oh, when we get to that clip later in in a minute, uh, the clip is labeled weirdos. Oh my god. Let's fast forward to the end of the party. Fia, upset about what her father does and the speech that she give, uh, that he gives, goes and, and cries into Michael's arms, breaks down in his arms, says, my family ruins everything. You know, Michael says to her, I don't want to be involved in family affairs. Michael, I think the ship has sailed on you being involved in the Baxter family affairs, buddy. <laughs> well, and this is one of those things where it's like no one is open their eyes to like who is family you know you get one of those where it's like but you are family you know everybody in this whole group right now is family as weird as that is we're all related now so you have no choice you know you have absolutely no choice let's talk about jimmy and michael we with the episode picks up just after the last one ends right last week ends with the two grandpas staring at the baby this episode picks up with them in the car uh, Michael is being driven back home. Uh, Jimmy's next to him in the backseat, starts whistling in a way that was very uncomfortable for everyone. Oh my God, how bad did I want that whistling to cease? I was like, no, no. Uh, Michael gets <laughs> out. My was like, <laughs> Michael gets out and naively asks, Michael has a couple of naive comments in this episode. There's some, there's some naive comments all around in this episode. Um, but he asks, you know, how did you know I'm staying with my mother-in-law, who we affectionately call Senator Grandma? Just and Jimmy just kind of smiles at him. Like, Michael, don't you get everyone is watching you? Did you not read our notes about the episode theme? Everyone is watching you. Olivia's yes. in the fucking bushes watching you being watched. 
It is silly. It's kind of like like a board game where you have like Carmen San Diego, like right. in the bushes, and right. <laughs> Jimmy, and then Michael, Jimmy's watching Michael's Michael. Like, pull back two steps. <laughs> Olivia's watching Jimmy watch Michael pull back two steps. Charlie's watching Olivia watch uh, watching Jimmy watching Michael pull back. Nancy's watching Charlie watching Olivia watching Jimmy watching Michael. Nice, you kept it all there. I did, I did, and then it was going to end up with Django. Skill. It's going to wind up with Django just looking Django's for food. Watching Charlie. Jen- Jango's coughing up blood. He's coughing up bloody, <laughs> bloody He's awful. He's eating brains. He's eating brains. Oh, God. Oh, gosh. You know what? Uh, I cannot. We, we skipped past this a couple of episodes ago, and I totally, when I was watching Michael cut up the meat and was cutting the fat off of those, the, the steak, the mm-hmm. big, like, side of beef. Got real good at cut, was, uh, trimming meat in such a short amount of time. All I could think time. of was Django. All I could think of was, like, he had said that the butcher cut off the little, like, sides, the pieces that people don't eat. Yeah, and brizzle. when he, yeah, well, no, he called it that ofo stuff. Well, awful, yeah. But, yeah, but that was, like, the, I was like that's what he's doing it was a funny little callback it was a funny little callback i i've had this in my notes too for two weeks and this is a super tangent not related to anything in this episode one of the things about season one michael was that he was in great shape right he the entire season he ran all over goddamn new orleans because he was in marathon shape he was trained for a marathon that's why he ran everywhere it was it was almost comical how i mean he ran to the hotel at the end of the season to save or try and save adam because his car was blocked in and then he becomes so emaciated and he's he loses all of that weight in prison on the hunger strike working at a meat place side benefit and doing the deliveries michael's gonna get all sorts of jacked up and in shape again i don't know if that's gonna come in handy but given the amount of focus on his health and his training and him being in shape in season one it struck me at the end of episode one of this season michael's gonna get in pretty good shape working at a meat company as far as you know versus being like having a desk job Right. Well, I I think that's fascinating. It's his own little it's his own little gym. His it's his, it's gym. Rocky Four, right? Punching the meat yes, run, when you're training in Russia. Punch the meat in the nose. Punch the meat. <laughs> I actually think Rocky does that in 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 movies one, two, and four. So oh, I feel like there's a lot of meat punching and all of punch the meat, Rock. Right. I was I was gonna oh, do right. a, I was gonna, I was gonna do a Burgess Meredith. <laughs> I was afraid you like stroked out there for a second. Uh, I was gonna do right? a Burgess like stop talking. <laughs> I was gonna do a Burgess Meredith like you gotta punch the meat rock. You gotta do it. Oh, that's my, my gosh. that's my Mickey, uh, the trainer from Rocky. That was intense. Let's intense. get to Jimmy and Michael because this whole episode is Jimmy watching Michael be so easy with his daughter, have such good like um like real intimate affection real fatherly moments with her from afar and like we said at the beginning you could see the jealousy rising in his chest which culminates with him getting uh, have having having had enough and uh, their end conversation so i want to jump right to their end parking garage conversation what do you want with my family uh, nothing nothing Nothing. And why get a job delivering meat to my hotel? Hmm? Come drinking at my bar, telling Carlo about Harry the Hook, and why do I keep seeing you around my children? Now remind me. They let you out of prison early because 
because I wanted to kill myself. They didn't want my blood on their hands, but that shouldn't stop you. Dude, I 100% thought as soon as he put his hand out with the gun and he was pointing down, every part of me was like, Michael is going to take his hand, put it under Jimmy's hand and like rise his hand up to make the gun like touch his own forehead. Like I like you could see that being like projected to us like this is about to happen. Like he's going to say, go ahead and kill me. Like I smelled all of it throughout the whole thing. Yeah. Leaning your head against the muzzle is a, is a really effective move here's the thing i think michael in this scene is trying to talk himself out of getting killed he i think he's using reverse psychology here in the you know don't let that stop you do it please that the pause and then the please leaning his head against the muzzle seemingly like wanting jimmy to kill him i think was a reverse psychology way of not getting jimmy to kill him but here's the thing every good lie every good effective lie is based on truth. And I think there is a large part of Michael that would be totally fine if Jimmy just shot him here and killed him here. You know what I mean? So I think yes. he, I think for purposes yeah. of saving Charlie and whatever else his motivations are, maybe the baby increasingly so, though he's not willing to admit it yet. All of that stuff, I think he wants to make it out of this parking garage alive in this moment. There's a, a significant truth here of, I really wouldn't mind if you killed me. No, I, I felt that. I felt like it was very, it was very 50-50. Like, if he did it, okay. And if he doesn't do it, at least he knows, like, how far Michael is willing to go in this bluff situation. You know, he's willing to lean his head against the gun. Well, he Are believes he's suicidal. Are you willing to do yeah. more? Are you willing to take the next step? Gina Baxter would be willing to take the next step. Jimmy backs off and is like, mm-mm, which is interesting. And not that I feel like... He should have killed him in that moment, but uh, it speaks a lot to Jimmy and like this whole idea of like, does he have whatever it takes to be the ultimate mob boss? And I think the answer is no, because he doesn't want to get blood on his hands. He doesn't want to get blood on his hands, but also he could easily turn to Frank and say, do it. And he doesn't. Frank obviously will not have a problem killing anyone. And we've seen we've seen Jimmy pull the trigger. He shoots boat guy last season, shoots him dead a lot. I mean, then leaves Ma- dead a lot. Then leaves, <laughs> then leaves Michael and Frank. He was wicked dead. <laughs> he was super dead, you guys. Yeah, like so dead. I mean, beyond life, like dead. He leaves Michael and Frankie to clean up the body, but he's the one who pulls the trigger. So he's willing to pull the trigger. I think there's a part of Jimmy that likes Michael or at least empathizes with him. He's not going to be the one to end his suffering. He wants him to suffer. Right? That's the whole that's why it's such effective lie. Well, it's he's not going to be merciful and I mean while he's calling it the executioner executioner, it's also like the you don't have to be in this misery anymore and he's not going to let anyone off the hook in that regard. And I think that's right. And I think that's true, but I think in the same way Michael is bluffing here by selling up the truth of I don't care, kill me. I understand it, man. I understand you don't want me around your family. I understand your feelings 
that you've lost a child. I, I mean, I didn't play the beginning clip, but that clip is, I see you with my daughter and it's so easy. You know, you've, you, I, you, I lost a son. Like there's a whole like setup there and it starts with Michael saying, listen, I get it. You've got to do what you've got to do, bro. Like I, yeah, I yeah. understand. Put here, I'll put my head closer to the gun. Let's go. Effective. But he knows, he knows that Jimmy is not going to want to be the executioner. I think Jimmy, while also not wanting to be giving Michael the easy way out as executioner, ha- also is bluffing here, though, a bit. I feel like he senses something bigger. I feel like I don't think it's necessarily a bluff. I think it's more like that excuse that Michael gives. They let me out of prison because I wanted to commit suicide. What? Yeah, I know. That That's, is flimsy that as is, hell. This is Olivia's level of work product, guys. This is what Olivia's up to. So if I'm Jimmy and I get this super flimsy excuse about why you were let off, to me, I'm not pulling the trigger because I assume there's 20 SWAT guys hidden all around me because this clearly feels like a setup. So I would be like, I'm not pulling the trigger on you. I'm, And maybe I can look cool and say a line like, I'm not your executioner. But in reality, I'm sitting there thinking, this is the dumbest excuse I've ever heard of why you've been let out. I don't know what's going on with you in the pat down and the one collar stay and all that biz. But I've got enough healthy suspicion that I am not going to incriminate myself right here in the middle of this space where... I every part of me should be bristling that like I'm at least being watched or somehow recorded in some way. Someone is watching what we're doing. I'm not going to incriminate myself in this moment. So to me, I thought he was just being smart and backing off and being like aware of like, this is stupid. Something's going on here. I think that's also true. And I think uh, while Michael may not be aware of always being watched everywhere all at once, I think Jimmy very much is aware of what people watching him and tracking him and trying to keep tabs on him. I, I think there's another thing at play here though, too. And maybe I'm a sap because I'm a, I'm a sappy dad, but I think he knows if he kills Michael, that is irreparable harm to his relationship with Fia. Oh, yes. Yes, I agree with that. I think I would dare say that is the primary reason he doesn't kill him here. Because he needs Michael alive to study him to see why he's getting so well along so well with his daughter, and he's not. We have our we have our suspicions. You made a great argument about the baby and keeping the baby, but we still don't know what the rift is between these two. We really don't. When When episode one ends... And they're on the dock. It's us versus mom and Carlo. A year later, we, we they're rift. And maybe the most significant rift, because she will not talk to her dad really at all. We still don't know what that's about. So I think keeping Michael alive is Jimmy's way one, because he doesn't want to lose his daughter forever. And he knows if he's the one who kills Michael, the only one Fia trusts at this moment, that's irreparable harm to their relationship. And two, I think he wants to study him. I think he's like, what, what, what are your moves here? What are you doing right so I can emulate them so I can get my daughter back? We're starting to get to learn these writers a little bit. And it it makes me feel like, uh, you know, as we as Lost Watchers and as the Leftovers Watchers, we kind of got to know Damon Lindelof as a writer, creator, producer. And, and in that we learned he doesn't like to create endings that are super conclusive, that we all agree on, that we all understand exactly what happened. He likes to leave things really up for interpretation. I feel like the writers, when it comes to this show, they have no problems with leaving out really 
big things like why are they rifting? What is the beef about? Like whatever. We may never know in the same way that we may never know what happened to Robin. We may never know, you know, what a lot of these behind the scenes conversations are, what people know about this or that. We have a lot more questions than we have answers, but it's a it's a very consistent, predictable pattern with our writers that they are okay with leaving loose ends. And as an audience, we we can have fun with that or we can be frustrated with that. So I'm glad that for me and you, we're pretty good at having fun with these things, I think. I mean, I don't get angry at the show. I think some people could get angry and be like, ah, because because they use words like plot hole or they'll say like, oh, well, you just you just skipped over that. And that was like lazy writing or something. I don't feel that way because I feel like it's super consistent. So it's like they choose not to have some of these big moments as a part of, you know, what we see on the screen. We just have to piece it together. Right. If we had the starting point, like them on the docks, right? You and me against mom and Carlo. And then you have the ending point a year later where they're beefing. Well, we can go forward because we know they're rifting and that's enough for the story now. As to what happened in that year, I would love to know, but also I have an imagination. I, I can come up with, I can, we, and we did, we, we said, and you actually had a great theory, which makes a lot, a lot of sense. If you track through it with the state of the baby and, and having the baby or not having the baby, we are allowing ourselves to fill in the middle because honestly, you have limited time to tell a story. You've got a lot of story to tell. You're not going to get every answer. I don't think they owe it to us to give us every answer. So let us fill in the blanks. It's not like, it's not like they just never showed Jimmy and Fia together at all. No, they, they, they told us, they told us by showing us these two are in a rift that they are not connected anymore. They are not close anymore. There is something bad that happened between them. And that's enough. You just have to go on that and then take the story from there. And hopefully, listeners, you guys are okay with that. And, you know, if you have questions, one of the best parts of podcasting is that we can interact with you guys. So come over to the Facebook group or come on over to Pod Clubhouse and leave us some messages and some comments so that we can, like, talk some of this out. Because some of it, as the the viewers, as the audience, it's kind of part of our responsibility to try to fill out the story, I think, and try to make sense of it, help, like, make some connections. And I think that's something that you and I generally like to do in these shows. I love it. It's so. fun. Let's talk about about Michael interacting with Gina and Carlo before we get into the party aspects that we haven't covered yet. Michael probably had to realize that he was, as a guest of Jimmy, he was going to have to have an interaction with Gina, but I don't think he was really prepared for the heat with which she came at him. And and the way he stumbles, you know, he doesn't really stumble, but he kind of blurts, Jimmy invited me. And Gina's really kind of eye-rolling it. She's out of the loop, which Gina is never more dangerous than when she's out of the loop. And her one family is Stay away from the family. The sound design after she says that and walks away, where it kind of like the music and the conversation all drowned out, and it was almost like oh, like a like being underwater in his yeah, ears. It makes you yeah, it makes you feel like all the blood rushed to your head. No better way to indicate the onslaught of the onset of a panic attack. It was really, really effective. And so that he goes to the bathroom and is having like, is hyperventilating a little bit. Totally got that. They did a great job of conveying that. And I got to agree with him. I find Gina a thousand times more terrifying than Jimmy. 
in every way. I, she has no restraint anymore. I mean, if she ever did, if she, ever she did. certainly doesn't now. The things that she's willing to say and do, and again, point to the support group, point to the meeting in the mayor's office. Like, she's filterless. She's willing to step past the line of what everyone else, even our, our friendly neighborhood gangsters, don't cross the line. And she does. And so it's like, man, I, you know, if I was, if I was looking at these two, she is the one because she's the one that could just go off. And she has no problem like sending goons where like definitely Jimmy, although he's got Frankie, I mean, he really is the one who handles the majority of the stuff. So if you can get your arms around him in terms of understanding him, you're okay. But with Gina, she'll send off some like, you know, Carlo Joey type that has no understanding. <laughs> and then you're just meat, you know, that's a very good way of summarizing it to Gina. People are just meat and just expendable. She doesn't, she doesn't care about asking the questions first before shooting. Jimmy consistently has been drawn, always wants to, wants to ask the question. He wants to get answers, whether or not he believes them, whether or not they're what he wants to hear. Jimmy has shown he will always ask the questions, even with very dead boat guy, the extortionist boat guy last season. His name was Trevor. Very dead boat guy. Even before he shoots him, he turns to Michael. He's like, oh, this guy, what does he know? Like, does it matter? You're going to kill him anyway, but he wants to know what he knows before he shoots him. I like that about Jimmy. I like that he asks questions before he does impulsively violent things. Gina is just, she's just spraying and praying, you know, all over. You know, she's crossing herself with a blood splatter on her cheek. That's Gina's aesthetic. Uh, it's, it's insane. It is so, they're so diametrically opposed in how they conduct their business. It's startling that they have been able to be married and in and running a mafia family for as long as they have been, given how different they are. Makes me wonder. Again, we've never actually seen this organization actually do much. So I'm curious if it's a if this has just been treading water and this family doesn't actually do all that much organized crime. We don't get a lot of Gina and Jimmy in this episode. Most of the interaction between the two of them is really Gina reacting to Jimmy's toast, which we're going to end this discussion with or this part of the discussion with. But let's talk about Gina and her relationship with Carlo, the weirdos. I don't want you slumming it. Jesus, mom. Don't ever settle. Are you making sure there's extra security tonight? Yeah, I'm on it. Makes me nervous having this many family members together out in the open. Well, no one's going to touch us again. You're your mother's son. Yeah, that's probably why dad doesn't like me. Oh, no, he loves you. He just doesn't understand you. You know, until I had you, my relationship with my papa was the most important thing in the world to me. I pray one day you'll have that with your father. It's okay. I have that with you. Oof. And then she, like grabs his head with both of her hands and like puts her forehead up against his <laughs> these two these two are a long fucking edible day so okay it's hard because here's the deal so i have a son and i am very like affectionate mom and so i i i do some of this biz but it's the um extra like slurpy sound kind of use that as like a a generalized vibe of them that i can't stand like you feel like she could totally start licking in his ear or like doing something bizarre that it's her lack of boundaries that make me uncomfortable yes i also 
am I'm very affectionate with my son. I am very close with him, you know, but there's there's an extra thing here that just well, it feels like I said, it feels very edible. It feels very yeah, it's our lack of boundaries that is the scary thing. But he like doesn't recoil at either. This is a grown ass man at this point. He's not a yeah. child, and he and he's yeah. not like mom. You know, if I if I like tried to clean something <laughs> off of like Tom's nose, he's like smacking my hand away. He's just kind of like, yeah, mommy. You know, it's 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 whatever. I'm not out here trying to besmirch men's relationships with their mothers, but these two should get a room. Uh, <laughs> but but there's something interesting in here though. One, she's talking. She's invoking her father, which. We up until last week, we never even heard about her family other than other than the fact that it was her side of the family that was violent. We never really got specifics about her family before last week. And now not only are we meeting Carmen in this episode, in this conversation with Carla, we have her talking about how her relationship with her father was the most important thing before he was born, the oldest son. You know, it's funny. It makes it seem very much like Rocco must have been Jimmy's kid in the same way Fia is Jimmy's kid. Makes you wonder if Carlo really is Jimmy's kid. Do you remember in season one, we talked about this actually quite a bit about about if Gina was already married with a kid when Jimmy married her and that Carlo was really only hers. And well, just casting wise, too, Fia and Rocco look so much like each other. Whereas, whereas Carlo doesn't really look like Jimmy or Rocco or Fia in any way. The scenes like this and these conversations, you know, he doesn't like me. Well, he doesn't, he doesn't, he loves you. He just doesn't understand you. This, this idea of I am the only one who understands you. One, not only does that solidify Carlo as being on his mother's side in whatever war of control may be coming. And I think there's a war of control coming, but it also hammers home this idea of us versus them, which Fia was picking up on back in episode one. You know, you and me aren't like mom and Carlo. They revel, they wallow, they revel in the violence. We're not like that. How do you do what they do? That's what she says to her father. Gina's saying the same thing here. You're not like me and you aren't like Jimmy. And by implication, Jimmy is soft. Your father is soft and weak. We are strong and violent. You know, the don't go slumming it, never settle. You know, all of her parenting advice here is all metatextual. It's all subtextual for be strong, be stronger than your father, be strong like I am strong, be strong like the Conti blood that's in you, not the Baxter blood. Again, is there Baxter blood even in there? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we got to go from there. Let's go to then, uh, let's introduce Carmine Conti. Uh, the clip I'm going to play is actually when he's talking to Michael and Charlie, and then it cuts to his conversation with his daughter. Mayor Figaro, Judge Desiato, meet Carmine Conti, my father-in-law. Always a pleasure to meet the city's power brokers. I'm looking forward to the wonderful things we'll do together. What's wrong, my darling? Nothing, I'm fine. Gina. You see why I called you to come? Every day I get and more worried about the direction this family is heading in. It's going to be all right. I don't know, Papa. Things are different now. That's why I'm here. Mene prendero cura. Mene prendero cura. 
I'll take care of it. <laughs> so wicked. It's such a good thought and such a scary thought. Well, uh, yeah, if, you, if you've got the right scratchiness in your throat, it's pretty menacing. Hey, dude, can I just say I wish I was at this party? It looks like so much fun. So it much fun. It looked like so much fun. I was yeah. like digging on the jazz band, loving everything, love Jimmy's look. It's so Andy Garcia circa any movie he's ever been in. He has that white suit coat every time. Love it. Love it. Yeah. Big props to uh, Darren Grant, who directed it. The shot of Jimmy in the white tux with the big sparkling cake, like his face over the big cake as it comes out. Oh, gosh, that directing, how they chose to shoot that. Woo! Excellent. Straight out of every great mobster movie ever. It really just nailed it on the head, yeah. Big fan of the entire aesthetic of the party. I felt like how slow he blew out the candles and everything. It all felt so foreboding. It all felt like, like like, you know, a knife was going directly in his back as he was leaning over the cake. It felt so like, oh, you know, like when you, it's like, are these the last candles? you ever blow out kind of thing and he's got like a he's got a crazy blowing out the candles yes. he's, he's blowing like a madman but also then waving his arms around and, and it works the candles are i mean his arms must have some force you just said you just said he's like doing like blowing out candles like a madman I love it. That's Jimmy, man. That's the charm of Jimmy. But I got to say, I want to invite to Jimmy Baxter's birthday party. That looks like a a lot of fun. Yeah, 100%, 100%. And so the reason I played that clip is twofold. One, the first part of the clip is is the same genius masterstroke that Jimmy has by giving his toast, which we're going to play in a second. Uh, Let's get lots of pictures of me this old mobster everyone knows the mobster together with this judge together most importantly with this mayor talk about leverage and talk about wielding your way in to the inner sanctum of power a picture says a thousand words like a thousand words right so these pictures of carmine conti jimmy baxter mayor figaro judge desiato for those that still know him as the judge and maybe not as the ex-con you know these are these are important photos for for everyone involved for good or for bad so that's genius then you have charlie and uh michael staring at carmine off in the distance when he's talking to his daughter gina saying like what the hell is he doing back in new orleans he hasn't been here since the late 90s so why is he back now well mene prendero cura i mean he's he's here to take care of it what is the it Maybe Jimmy, maybe establish control at the top of the family, you know, to to write a ship that he sees as broken. I don't know. What do you think he's back for? I think it could be a series of things. I mean, definitely Gina feels like Jimmy's inaction has to be addressed and she does not have the the clout to do it herself. So she calls in the big guns and is going to hide behind dad's legs, I think. And we're going to see what happens here. I mean, I think it's Michael. I think it's Charlie. I think it's so many different portions. But the thing is that I don't actually feel like Gina was like super on board with the hotel Baxter District whole idea. No. I mean, she was there and she I don't think she gives a Charlie. shit. No, I don't. I, yeah, you're right. I, I don't think she gives a shit either. So I'm kind of curious if she has her own pet project that hasn't been revealed yet because I'm not quite sure exactly since we can see that she really wasn't there to back Jimmy. She was just there to really, you know, screw, you know turn the screws on Charlie at that meeting. So what is it that she wants exactly? What can Carmen 
mind get her? So I think this goes back to a discussion we were having last week, right? The the competing odds of Jimmy and Gina, right? The meeting is a great example. She's there because of Big Mo's encroachment into the French Quarter. So and Jimmy's there because Jimmy wants to expand what they have. And I think those are at odds. I I think Gina's concerned about power and protecting what they have without weakening what's below it. Jimmy isn't looking at her encroachment into the French Quarter. Does it's not even on his radar because he's just seeing growth, whether it's for because he wants to quote unquote legitimize the business or if it's just how he sees they grow their power. How do we get power? One is through violence and through tough, tough guy thuggery. One is through business and the richer we are, the more powerful we are in business, the stronger our family will be. I see that. I wonder if Charlie had played ball and gone along with everything, would Gina have had a beef in that meeting or not? Like you say she went there to complain about Big Mo, but had Charlie said, you know what, why why don't we just smooth this all over you guys, you know, give me, you know, a check and we'll go ahead and sign the papers. Would she have yelled about Big Mo still? She, that was her sole reason for being there okay so that was the only thing that was going to soothe her yeah calling her a bitch uh, from the lower ninth that was the only reason she was there so if he had said all right let's do it you guys are approved we don't need to do anything else she would have been like great before as jimmy's getting up she would have been like one more thing Okay. I mean, I think that, you know, they both have the same goal, which is to eliminate competition for themselves. And and it's really about how they go about doing that. And Gina's is, let's eliminate the competition through violence and suffering and, you know, killing, basically, and blowing things up, destruction, where Jimmy's is, let's just outbid them, out, outpace them, you know? Let's say Charlie does play ball. That doesn't take care of Big Mo across the street from Baxter House problem. And it doesn't scratch her itch for the violence. That's well, the no. thing. It's like she needs to have someone suffer in order for her to be happy. I said that like two episodes ago. As long as he gets what he wants, Jimmy doesn't need to make people suffer, provided he gets what he wants. But Gina needs someone to suffer in order for it to be a success. I I, I 100% agree. Very different. (laughs) Very different, which makes them at some point, at some intersection, at some intersecting line on the X and Y axis, these two can't coexist, where their separate goals will interfere. Gina's bloodlust and thirst for violence from from Carmine to her down through Carlo is going to interfere with Jimmy's business to create a Baxter district that is a beacon to the world for the world is your oyster and hard work. And Jimmy's focusing on creating a Baxter district to the neglect of, say, letting desire enter the French Quarter interferes with Gina's plans for keeping power via bloodlust and violence. We're reaching a point where they cannot coexist. Interesting. I mean, a great example of this is how Gina is on her heels because she was out of the loop. She didn't understand the judge was in contact with Fia, didn't know about the judge and Jimmy, Michael and Jimmy having, you know, a meeting to the extent that he was invited by Jimmy to the party. She's out of the loop there. So she's already back on her heels. We see her talking to her father. I'll take care of it. You know, the men in blender cura. Um, but then you have Jimmy doing this master. This is the most genius thing in this show a season and a half. This speech he gives, his toast he gives at his 50th birthday party, I think is just one of the smartest things anyone has ever done in anything ever. Let's take a listen to Jimmy's toast. Now, if a man's been lucky enough to spend half a century on this earth, 
and he's uh, <laughs> he's likely been blessed and cursed. Hmm? You can't uh, spend fifty years of life without a bit of both. Time brings joy and pain, loss and renewal. And tonight, I want to recognize the newest addition to our family, Judge Michael Desiato. Now, come on, Judge. Welcome him. Welcome him. Come on. Give him a round of applause. Everybody, come on. Cheer him on. Please. Thank you. As I understand it, Mr. Mayor, you were godfather to Michael's son. Well, I, I would imagine that you were a fine steward of that position. Well, perhaps you might be the perfect candidate to be Baby Rocco's godfather. That was three minutes. I had to reduce it down to get it to about a minute and a half. That was a three minute clip of people going murmur, 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 shock, shock faces, shock faces, <laughs> shock, 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 shock and shock awe. And awe. Yes. <laughs> welcome him. Welcome him. Welcome. He's, he's, he's a, he's a ringmaster. He's running the three ring circuit. He's, he's playing fucking 40 chess when everyone's out here playing checkers. He has finesse. The one word that I have been just tripping over this every single podcast is finesse. I want more finesse out of Olivia, out of Michael, out of Fia, out of Jimmy, out of Gina. I want finesse. I want there to be some forethought, some clever, some weaving that web where someone gets trapped and they can't get out of it. Look at Charlie and Michael. They're like, ah. <laughs> they are trapped. What are they supposed yeah. to say to get Charlie out of most this? of all? Because. Oh, Oh my God, because now it, he looks like he's sleeping with them. You know, the, the he's godfather obviously... to the crime boss. The mayor is going to be the godfather to what the crime boss's grandson. Jesus, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I love it. We're both like, Jesus Christ. I love it. I, you know what though? It's exactly the perfect play because you have him in public at your party. Mm-hmm. How are you saying no? Why are you here? If you're not a friend of the family, why are you here? If you're not somebody we could ask, your for best friend like was this? just introduced. Everyone thought they were going to save the baby. Mm-hmm. You know, a newest member of our family. Everyone's like, Oh, it's going to be the baby. And then he's like, Mike, judge Michael Desiato. Come on. Welcome him. Welcome him. We we're going to see like a lion King moment. Right. Where right. Like, oh. <laughs> We got him. But, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Mind blown. I mean, way to do it. Way to do it. To say nothing of the fact that it's it's couched in such sincerity and a manipulation of emotion on itself. I mean, we heard the part where he's talking about a life of 50 years, joy and pain, loss and renewal, uh, a blessing and a curse. So he's already setting that up. But the part I had to cut out from the clip was when he introduces Michael, he says, we share we share this new baby. And that's my Moira and uh, Moira Love shit. Uh, no, my, not Moira shit. Moira Rose. Uh, could you imagine Moira and no. Roland together? No, that's awful. Yeah, it is awful. It's gonna, that's going <laughs> to give me nightmares tonight. 
you know, through the baby, he says, you know, my beautiful daughter, Sophia, and then the judge's late son, Adam. I mean, it, it, wrapping the whole thing and introducing him as his family and kissing him on the cheek proverbially in front of everyone is such a it's such a genius moment because it's wrapped in all of this emotion that we all identify everyone has had a birthday at some point where you think back and you go man life is full of ups and downs joy and pain blessings and curses it's it's really it's just a masterstroke i watched it like three times i was so blown away three minutes of riveting storytelling and and stuhlbarg is so good michael stuhlbarg who plays jimmy baxter he's got some ticks that work so well for this character but he's he's on such full display in this that this is peak what jimmy baxter can be at his very best at his very best insofar as a mastermind villain there was so many micro expressions that he utilized when he's mm-hmm. at the bar and he glances over and sees via hugging michael his he has this wicked diabolical smile first and it just melts into this grimace that's like I can't even. I can't even with this guy. <laughs> it is really excellent acting. Let's not forget, one of the primary reasons for him inviting Michael to the party was so that Fia would come to the party. Because remember, he goes to invite Fia, and the bait to get her there is, I invited, you know, Michael Desiato. That's what her gets her there. He knows that. I, this is my whole thumping of all of the motivations for why he doesn't kill him. The Fia connection and what he represents. Jimmy knows it. So, yeah, you're, you're 100% right. Our faces have so many muscles in them. And I feel like Michael Stubart is in control of every single individual face muscle. Because he can twitch morphing, one. Oof, yeah. The morphing between one expression to the next is... The way his really eyes excellent. the way his eyes squint and widen, and it's just a masterclass. Just, just watch him face act for a while. It, it's just... It's really impressive. And this scene, this whole birthday party, but this scene that Jimmy Toast is... Uh, it's it's excellent, and it certainly sets up a brand new dynamic now between everybody. Because and publicly, you know, this isn't something like behind the scenes. I mean, now this is publicly has been declared. You know that the mayor and and the judge and the Baxters are all together, and you're like, oh yeah, it's pretty wild. You have to. I mean, we're, we're, we haven't we haven't yet watched five. We'll be watching five as soon as we're done recording for here. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's our last screener we have of the initial batch. But you have to imagine the fallout for Charlie here. The guy, that pollster guy that follows Charlie around everywhere and acts as his sounding board, you know he's just shitting himself somewhere. Where, oh, God, yes. Wherever he's watching the the evening news. The you know, <laughs> Mayor Charlie Figaro, uh, you know, uh, whining and dining next at the arm of Jimmy uh, Baxter, the godfather to Jimmy Baxter's grandson. Can you even imagine? And oh, I, I had to cut it from the clip, too, but, but uh, when he calls, he's already got Michael down next to him and he is like and you know michael's best friend the mayor charlie uh charlie figaro is here he's like come on down charlie figaro it's <laughs> he, he he has such relish he has a whole meal on figaro it's it's great oh, it's great go watch the scene again guys it's fantastic and it's those small scenes that really make this show that is what like when we're sitting back and we're saying like this is really good tv it's moments like this where you're like ah yes it's exactly what i needed yeah, it's delicious. It's just it's, it's <laughs> as delicious as that cake look, I got to tell you. Oh, right. And and talk about setting it up for the future. Clearly, the show is indicating in this scene following up with Carmine and Gina, it's Gina, Carmine, Carlo versus 
Jimmy, Michael, Fia, Charlie. Right. That that feels like yes. the line that was drawn, the invisible line in the sand that's drawn in this episode feels like it has to be setting that dynamic up. And man, with only six episodes left, I mean, that's still more than half the season, but it feels like it's not enough. It feels like this is a show I want to watch from the start. Well, you know? I want to know everything about everyone. That's the thing. Like, I want to know what's going to happen to everybody, everybody across the board from Desire to the Baxters, to everybody like I it, before all we cared about was Michael and Adam. That's it. We just wanted Adam to stay safe, Michael to stay safe. That's it. Now I actually care like what happens with the rest of these people. And uh, I'm invested. Well, it's time for us to get to Desire now that you've mentioned it. I, I don't know what to think of the fall. <laughs> there, there's so many moving pieces here. We, we've got to get into it. The first is Little Mo understanding when he's in lockup in Harris County Jail. He's de- down there in H-Town by you. Oh, not just by me. I'm in, I'm Harris County. Now, Harris County is a gigantic county. Well, here, it contains it. all of Houston, I read, plus surrounding communities. So that must make it a large. Huge. It's huge. So um, so I was just kind of, you know, snickering because it's just funny to have in my backyard. What did you think? I mean, did you feel like this looked like nicer jail than New Orleans or, or do you have any comparisons between Houston and New Orleans? No, I mean, it actually looked more like a prison than a jail with the, with the amount of like cells that they had, but it's just a holding jail. So it was actually probably more developed than I would imagine the jail actually looks like, even for a large county, but. I don't know. I don't. I haven't spent a lot of time in jail, but no, um, thank God. No, <laughs> see all my teardrop tattoos under my left eye. Oh my uh, God! Uh, listen, I, we have to say this off the bat. Wait, can I say this off the bat? <laughs> Please, before you say yours off the bat. Yes. How did no one die in this episode? <laughs> That's a very good call. No one die in this episode. Because I gotta get it- to the mid-season finale next week. Yeah, but it almost made no sense that no one died. I mean, I was like looking at every single one of these people like, come on, you've got such a big target on your back. I mean, Roderick was ready to, to you know, slit throats at any second. I'm like, what? How did no one die? But OK, let's talk about Roderick real quick. But before I talk off my hat about jail, uh, let's talk about Roderick, because I think Roderick, the character in the two episodes that we've briefly gotten to see him now. One of the most terrifying characters ever. Oh, wow. Menacing. There is, he is so lean and wiry and hard looking. I, I don't know if that makes okay. sense. There, there's a hardness yeah, to him about. in yeah, his like face. Yeah, like he's got that lean muscle that's going to just like build a apart. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. but like a jackal, not like a bear. Mm, like yeah, a, yeah, yeah like, like a, like a jungle cat. Yeah. And so when he's in the scene, I'm, I'm, my butt is clenched when, <laughs> when he's at the door and Sheila, God bless her. She mm. plays it so cool. Even with the, her, her dumbass son being in jail and she's so mad at him, she still covers. But the scene, the way the scene shifts from friendly, like, Roderick, what are you doing in my yard, to menacing on both of their parts? Like, you you know, she she answers questions, so you don't live here. He hasn't lived here for years. Like... I don't keep tabs. He's on a him. grown ass man. I don't keep tabs on him. But like, yeah. like you're real set on finding him. And then, but they're they're each matching the escalation. It's a terrifying thing. And then poor Eugene. Uh, the what, the part with the backpack when he there he's like, what's in it? And he's like, just some books. I was so thankful that when Roderick grabbed the backpack, that there truly was just books in it. I was like, okay, okay, good job. He would have just sliced it. He would have sliced his throat open right there. I, going back to the how did no one die? 
die in this episode. Right. But that's it. Roderick, though, I think what they have shown in his Little League multitasking drug, you know, drug dealing ways and the way we see him in this episode, he is not impulsive. Violent? Yes. Terrifying? Yes. Impulsive? No. So why is no one dying in this episode? Because he doesn't know where his fucking money is. No one's going to die until he knows where that money is. And then I think everyone's going to die. <laughs> he, you're, you're very right in that he, again, going back to talking about who has restraint and who doesn't, who is more calculating, who is waiting to sit back and wait for their moment versus just acting out impulsively. We're seeing a really good example of what it looks like to sit and wait for your, for your uh, catch to come in here. He is playing the long game. He's fully knowing Sheila is lying to him, or at least sensing that she is lying to him, looking at the guilty look on Eugene's face, even though that book bag didn't turn anything up. He knows that the smart thing to do here is wait and stalk and watch. Episode theme, watching. Roderick is doing watching in this episode. He's following Sheila, right? He's following her to the jail. He's keeping an eye out until... Until it's time for him to go ransack the home. Now, the question is, with the ransack at the home, did Sheila walk in to find her house that way? Or was Sheila there and have to sit and watch her house be turned upside down? Either That's one is bad. Yeah. But but there's a part of me, the way she was so shaken up almost makes me feel like she ha- she was there and was powerless to stop it because she would have gotten herself killed. She had right. she would have she would have almost have to passively watch this man rip her house to shreds. That's what it seemed like because she was so shaken up. You know, but again, I give her credit as despite knowing this, this Roderick menace is on the loose. She is still trying to be a mom here, right? She, she goes and sees both boys in jail finally. You know, she's like, y'all back up on your bullshit again, and which is so funny. <laughs> so funny it's such a mom line it's, it's such exactly, a mom line it's exactly the kind of stuff i say like oh he's got a bullshit going on in here up yeah. on your bullshit is such a good yeah. line but uh, but then the way she talks <laughs> to big mo she's like you know i figure someone's dead after 10 years of silence right and and then she puts big mo in a way that we've never seen her big mo automatically is a sister it sounds like a, i would definitely bet little sister because she's like why you gotta be like that you know she's like it's either drugs or money it's one or the other like she's not giving she's not taking anyone's shit uh sheila and Mm -hmm. big mo is all of a sudden this like little girl on the phone to her but we find out that they haven't spoken in 10 years yeah 10 years of silence that's a very long time you know these i mean think about how young these boys would have been you know and she had already made the decree not to come near my child and and all that kind of stuff like whatever went down 10 years ago these kids were small you know and it seems like maybe big mo was already using the kids even as young as that well, yeah, I mean, she says in the very short phone conversation, she says, stay away from my son. She says, mm-hmm. I told you to stay away from my son. And then she mm-hmm. says, all capital letters, stay away from my son and then hangs up. How many times do you think in the day Big Mo is hung up on? Oh, <laughs> I would guess not very many times. Very infrequently. <laughs> very infrequently. But at the same time, but Sheila doesn't live in fear of Big Mo. She doesn't live in fear of Little Mo. She lives in a little bit of fear of Roderick, I think. I think she knows the deal with Roderick. I think she's a little scared of him, but as she should be. Roderick is literally in her backyard. Trey, Trey is still in jail. You know why Trey is still in jail? Because he's safer in jail right now. I'm positive that's why she didn't spring him from jail. Because until the Roderick situation blows over and, and or he follows the money out to Houston, out of Houston into New Orleans, Trey is in danger. Trey, if Trey is out now, Trey is dead. 
or at least being held like for ransom, you know, for 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 the money and for the and for the or missing like fingers and some kind of yeah. like you know uh, yeah, interrogation a finger, technique, a finger coming in the mail, that kind of thing for sure. Yeah, right. But from from Sheila's point of view, knowing who Roderick is, knowing what her and what Trey and Little Mo got up to, she's thinking my kid is dead if he's out of jail. So I'm literally going to leave him there for his own good. He can he can pout and slam stuff around in his cell all he wants. He's literally safer there. Well, and definitely safer to to let little mo get out of here you know like and take trouble with them yeah mm -hmm, much safer to to allow that part to happen and let like you said let roderick like follow the trail there and head away and then get him out very very smart on her part because you are taking a risk because we discussed like while for most of us prison is very separate from where we live you know, I believe Roderick has reach in that jail, I'm sure. So it's not exactly like he's safe per se, but he's safer. And so long as he's not caught up in the same place as Little Mo at the same time, which is now impossible because he's in jail and Little Mo's not, you're at least creating some distance between him and the problem. Let's talk about Little Mo a little bit. Uh, let's listen to his call that he makes with his one free call. He calls Eugene. Hello? This is a call from an inmate at the Harris County Jail. To accept the charges, press 1. You little man, it's me. Yo, you alright? I've been better. I got my bag, right? <sighs> yeah, it's under my bed. Alright, good. I'm gonna figure out a way to get out of here so I can get back to New Orleans. Until then, I'm gonna need you to guard that shit. Okay. It's my life in there, though, man. You heard me? Yeah, all right, I, I got you. All right, good. I think, like everyone else in the show, Little Mo is using some manipulation there, right? Some emotional manipulation by saying, you got to protect the bag. That's my life, little man. But also... I think he's also trusting Eugene. I think he's also talk, talking straight up to him, too, saying, like, my life literally depends on that bag staying safe. Like, do not underestimate how important that bag under your bed is. I'm proud of Eugene for being so straightforward and brave and being able to say that he's got his back and he's he's able to try to hang in here. I think that Eugene makes the best decision he could possibly make in doing what he did in this episode. Yeah. Well, so let's I'm talk about that. So proud of him. What, were you surprised that he actually did the runner out back to New Orleans to Big Mo's house? I was absolutely shocked when that moment happened, but at the same time, I cheered because it's the antithesis of what all the grown adults are doing. You have the opportunity to tell the truth and show up and take the consequences versus continuing to run and lie, which is what everybody else is doing. He's the only one who ever just shows up and says, it's me. I'm the one, you know, right. and he did it. You know, he's, he's the Taylor Swift. It's I, I'm the problem. It's me. It's like, here he is, you know, and when he showed up on the on the steps, he showed more courage and hopefully is going to experience some mercy from Big Mo because he did do this. He did take the chance to get this money back to her and showed the loyalty. I hope that means that she will 100 percent, you know, be grateful for that. I She has to be, I think, because. He literally was showing up with that money. Remember, there was a weak clock on that Grand Rain deal. Mm -hmm. Him showing up with only a day lost with that cash in hand probably saved that deal for her. 
she's gonna re- she's gonna reward that. And remember, I hope so. She didn't want him to ki- die. She just understood as a in a business sense that he had to to prevent a war from happening but they've solved that problem right there's a dead eugene in a ground somewhere with a phone i mean in theory no one should be looking for him at this point so right this is eugene's brother bobine justin Justin. let him continue to be justin and let him you know let it fly here you know it certainly seems like he can exist in this world quietly, but it's all going to be about how Big Mo responds. And I don't know that I have a full sense of what she's going to do, but he is owed gratitude in my mind. He is owed some mercy and some grace. Cross my fingers. But no adult has done what I want them to do this whole time. It's, it seems to be the kids like Fia and, and Eugene who, are, who step up to the consequences of things. Let's uh, let's take a, a hop in the Wayback Machine to last week and uh, listen listen to a clip. Buckle up, everyone. It's the most money I ever trusted somebody with at one time. You asking me to hand it over to unknown just don't sit right with me. Yeah, well, I know. Oh, Trey know. Trey took a five-year bid on the case that was his. You can trust him. And make him loyal. Don't make him smart. Oh. Scared money don't make money. Last time I trust you with something this big, you lost them. You fucked up. Last time. Was the last time. Go make me some money. Last time was the last time. Now, that's why I played that clip again. Just to remind everyone the stakes here. He could not fuck this up. Little Bo literally fucked this up in the worst possible way. The only thing good out of this is that the money is still there and not invested in drugs. Or worse, stolen by Roderick. Or stolen by a third party. I mean, we don't even know, like, you know, yes, Roderick could have just taken it and not even given him the drugs. He definitely was not going to give them the drugs. Like, his finder's fee was going to be the money with no drugs, for sure. Yeah, and so that's the thing. Like, I, I'm, like, watching this, like, wow. I mean, they were really lucky to get out of there. Now, obviously, Roderick is going to menace them. I mean, there's no way he's going to be cool with this. So there's going to be more. But, man, I was I, so smart for eugene i don't know how he made it back to new orleans but god this is exactly where you needed to go so big mo being on the phone with uh chief and uh the other guy whose name i'm blanking on saying like get little you know get his ass back here yeah i was surprised they actually like allowed those two people to have any lines the rest (laughs) of her gang there's like all of four people Chief is in the credits every time, uh, and funny because Chief is actually his like nickname in credits too. Nice. I- I'm blanking on what his like. It's like name Chief last name, and they call him <laughs> Chief in the show. So the question, the question coming out of all of this is: Big Mo hopefully shows mercy to Eugene for saving her Grand Rain deal. Little Mo, out of chances, he should be dead. But by the decree set forth in last week's episode, that last time was the last time. Little Mo, if Big Mo doesn't have familial mercy on her side, he should be a dead man. He's an he is an he is a liability at this point. He has fucked up two major things in the last year now. Narratively, the great twist is Eugene gets to do for Little Mo what Little Mo did for him. 
plead for his mercy, right? Remember, mm-hmm. Eugene's only alive because little Mo arranged it for so. Gave him an address, gave him a wad of cash, and got him to the bus station. Now, this is Eugene's chance to do the same. Ooh, I like that idea. Do, does he have the clout? Because he can't, he can't give a wad of money. He can't give an address. Like, oh no, no. Have... I mean, not without getting him gone. But I'm saying, don't kill him. I, that that. No, but does he have? But does he have any way to do that? Is what I I'm saying. I think he's like, got a big ass sack anything? of cash. I, I think mm. I think he's so got. He says, I'm going to give this to you, Big Mo, but you've got to show mercy on Little Mo too. Please save Little Mo and and me. I think I think that's the exchange. Is I brought this to you, and I want to cash in a favor. Spare me and spare him. Does Big Mo have that much forgiveness in her heart? Does she? Should she? <sighs> I don't know. I think she's pretty, pretty fucking angry. So <laughs> pretty fucking angry too. But it, but it's a big deal that she finally gets this club. Do you know who can smooth this and soothe this? Her girlfriend singer. If Janelle is super pleased with the deal going through with the club, that can soothe a lot of anger out of Big Mo. Yes, I agree with you. Let me also say as a an additional reason that she may spare a uh, little Mo, at least for the moment. Let's, let's recall the conversation she has with Rudy. Rudy is the cop on the New Orleans police force. She calls him for him to somehow work his brother in blue bullshit. That's her quote, not mine to get little Mo out of jail in another state. Right. Which is a tall order for her to ask. And Rudy, the most we've seen him push back. This is my takeaway from their phone conversation was this relationship is strained. He even says he says on a phone, a phone that could be recording. He says, you don't pay me enough for this. Rudy has had enough of the desire bullshit, but also, (laughs) you know, he's also corrupt. So he still does it. There's a question of who needs who more. Does Rudy need desire more? Does big Mo need Rudy more? If she disappears, her nephew, who is also her Lieutenant in desire, the largest gang outside of the Baxter crime family in new Orleans. Well, maybe she doesn't want to kill little Mo. Maybe that's heat that she doesn't want to have to deal with. If her relationship with the police is strained. Mm, I like that. I like that. That the whole Cusack uh, Rudy thing was a real fly in the ointment. Like I didn't expect them to be at odds with one another in this episode. Like it was like, oh, okay. And more started? than just at odds, like really strained. He he was yeah. Yeah, I didn't ex- I didn't expect that storyline. Like I I'm, I was like, okay, but it definitely takes the teeth out of Big Mo in a lot of ways. You know, like she's gonna have to. I again. We talked about this with the Baxters. Baxters, okay, they're organized crime. Show me some organized crime. Okay, this is a gang, and we've got all these gang problems. Big Mo, you got to show me more gang stuff. Like, where are the other gang members? What are they all doing? You know, we have one cop and one Big Mo, and we don't got a lot of other stuff going on. So I'm like, I, I need to see some action here. Uh, yeah, no, it, it, the whole the whole storyline there the, again. The majority of this episode was definitely about Jimmy's birthday party and and pushing that story forward. The introduction of Carmine, but this development with Eugene, you know, doing a runner back to New Orleans, showing up on her porch, wearing that little that hoodie, which I thought made him look a little menacing and a, and a, more older than he exists in my head. 
Okay. But also kind of like under the cover of night kind of thing. The whole thing was kind of a twist. I didn't, I mean, it obviously was in the realm of possibility, but one I didn't see because remember, remember when he looks at the phone, when he says big Mo calling at the end of last week, he throws the phone in the bag and zips it and put it under the bed. Like, like get it out of here. Like talk about, <laughs> oh, uh, oh yeah. Like, like a curse. And here he is now running because he's out of options. He doesn't know where else to go. You say he's out of options, but he's not. He could have just gotten on a bus with all that money and just run. And I'm not saying that was a good choice. How many 14, 15-year-olds know, think, you think, think of that as an option? But how many 14, 15-year-olds willingly go and just admit defeat before getting to the point where they're backed up against a wall? Like, I, I think he still had a couple more options, but I'm proud of him for not taking them. I'm proud of him for not taking a bus to nowhere. I'm glad he went back because this is the only way to make this person not chase you anymore. And good for him for having the sense to know that well also remember that clip that bag is my life he i think he feels indebted to little mo i think he feels a brotherly mm-hmm. connection to little mo so if that bag represents little mo's life and that bag staying intact represent little mo's life it makes a lot of sense for eugene to go back to big mo right i'm handing you little mo's life here we should be square now this bag being with you should protect everyone from roderick I'm saying kid logic. I'm saying, I'm saying a, a 14, 15 year old logic who understands the world, but maybe not the entirety of the world in which he lives. Mm-hmm. Bringing that money and what it represents to Big Mo solves a lot of problems in his world. It is a very smart move. I'm proud of him. Yeah. And, and, and in his way, I think he's protecting little Mo's life. So we'll see. So we'll see if that so has too. to become more, uh, more, more <laughs> explicit. You know, I, I brought you this money, by the way, just so we're not clear. I brought you this money so you don't kill little Mo or me. Or Please me. don't kill me again. I don't want <laughs> to die me. a second time. Right. right. Justin we're Evans wants to that. live. <laughs> Any predictions? Anything? I can't even... I mean, other than the themes that we talked about, the increasing animosity between Gina and Jimmy and lines being drawn, try, taking stabs at what happens to to Little Mo in the aftermath, the closing of the Grand Rain deal, which again is going to bring back in Gina into Big Mo's life. I, I mean, these are things that have to be addressed, but I have no idea how they're going to go. I'm excited, though, because those are all interesting and and crazy outcomes from things that happened in this episode that seemed like, wait, <laughs> how did like the idea that Eugene is standing on Big Mo's porch at the end of this episode? Just I mean, it threw me back that I was like, wow, because really, when when we had Eugene sitting in the principal's office and all that stuff, I thought, oh, man, we're like really exploring his whole universe. You know, we're seeing him in the hallway at school. School, all this stuff. There's so many things that have been done off screen. I couldn't believe we were seeing this whole world of Eugene's. So the fact that he's back, I'm like, wow, okay. I'll say, let's, you know, a little pat on our back. We said that back in episode one, there's no way Eugene doesn't return at some point. So I'm glad that we were right about that. He's it made key. sense. Well, he's key, but he's he's a key part of the overall story. So we had mm-hmm. we have to have everyone back in New Orleans. This is this is not a Houston story. This is a New Orleans story. So we had to get him back there, you know. And we're back, baby. We're back. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to Tales from Yaya's, your dedicated after show podcast for the Showtime series, Your Honor. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, if you could, please leave us a five-star review. We would love it. We'd make you a giant sparkly cake that we could help you blow out and wave our arms like crazy. And I'll do like a wicked slow-mo cam on you at the same time. <laughs> and, and if you need something to 
taken care of, me ne prendero cura. I'll take care of it. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.